0: Welcome to The Rounds, a podcast of Marshfield Clinic Health System. I'm your host, Adam Hocking. The Rounds brings together medical experts to discuss fresh, fascinating, and important topics from the world of healthcare. How we're raised and socialized has a huge effect on the kind of adults we become and the lives we ultimately live. But as a medical profession, we're just beginning to understand the deep and complex impact that traumatic events or a sustained traumatic childhood can have on human development, we're learning that trauma not only affects our mental health and emotional development, but that can also physically change our brains. Here to help us better understand what trauma is and how it impacts children in particular, is Dr. Kristen Aniguez. As medical director of the Marshfield Clinic Child Advocacy Center, Dr. Aniguez specializes in caring for children who are potential victims of abuse. Dr. Aniguez completed medical school at Midwestern University, Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine, and is also board certified in pediatrics. Dr. Kristen Aniguez, thanks for joining us on the rounds today. Thank you. Now, when it comes to trauma, that's a word that's in our common vernacular. We all have sort of a working definition of what trauma is, but I think that's a general sense. In the psychological sense or in the sense of your expertise, what does trauma mean?
1: The term trauma is evolving and it is um, fairly new, still in a sense, um, trauma can refer to you know harm in general to the body, um, and so I think people generally tend to think of you know coming into a trauma unit mm, in yeah, the emergency a trauma department, surgeon, yeah. right? Um, but when we talk about this form of trauma and psychological trauma, it is any event, um, whether that be a physical thing or something that makes you essentially it. Undermines your sense of health and safety for your own your own self,
0: and so what does trauma look like? how How do you start to identify it? and um, maybe you can talk about sort of your expertise as it as it uh, relates to to children showing signs of trauma?
1: well, I think it's it's first important to talk about kind of what what trauma how trauma is caused. Okay, um, And so I think, like I mentioned, um, trauma comes in all shapes and sizes, and it can be, again, something like physical abuse or sexual abuse or um, being exposed to a significant um, natural disaster, being in a fire, being in a car accident, developing an illness, having a surgery. So there's all sorts of things, again, that that count. As trauma. And it's really up to the individual as far as how they perceive that and how life-threatening or threatening to their body they perceive these events. There's also things that are not necessarily physical. So we talk about emotional abuse. So when a person yells at you, calls you names, and generally undermines Your sense of self-worth, that also is traumatizing, and emotional neglect, where let's say you just don't get the nurturing and responsiveness you need from your caretakers, that also is traumatic. Then there are things just in our daily lives that can be kind of an underlying smoldering trauma. Uh, Living in poverty actually has traumatic effects on the brain. Um, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, um, not knowing where you're going to sleep tonight. Those are all things that really, again, can affect the way um, uh, a brain functions.
0: And is it more in the folks where you see the, the long sustained trauma, maybe a, a person that grew up in a, a physically abusive, they had physically abusive parents, do you see a, a bigger trauma response in those types of of people that lived in those situations typically than someone that just went through i don't know if there is such a thing as a normal life but I mean they had traumatic experiences maybe here and there but but their environment was more or less healthy uh, where do you see a difference in 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 sort of how does it make a difference how long people have been exposed to drama to trauma in terms of the response they have to it
1: Not necessarily, and you you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned, you know, living in a relatively healthy environment. and a person's ability to respond to trauma is a function of their level of resilience, and resilience is your ability to overcome that. Now, individuals who, let's say, don't have a lot of support in their life are going to deal very differently with any of these types of traumas that I've mentioned. But if you've got somebody in your in your life, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or a you know a, a parent of a friend who's there to help support you and help you overcome that, you're, you're going to do better. Overall.
0: And so what is the what is the experience of being traumatized or exposed to trauma? What's the effect? What does it do to people? And how do you distinguish it from depression or anxiety or or something else like that?
1: Well, and it all depends. Um, It depends really on the level of or the stage of development um, that let's say if this is a child we're referring to, what stage of development they're in when the traumatic experiences occur. Um, The younger you are, um, you know, theoretically, uh, the more potential damage can be caused by either a single significant event or multiple kind of chronic smoldering events. Um, but we can even experience trauma as adults and that can have an effect on how our brain works as well. What we see with children, especially in those critical times of brain growth from about zero to five, um, it actually can have a significant effect on what we call neurobiology, which is how the brain grows, and how the brain functions. So in children that have significant chronic abuse um, or neglect, uh, we see that their brains can be smaller, literally. So it affects the volume, but it also then affects how the brain works. And so it doesn't work as well. And we can see effects in all sorts of domains, including um, kind of emotional and behavioral health in their intellectual health, um, their ability to relate to others and have develop and sustain relationships, as well as their physical health. So it can come out in all sorts of ways. um, And that these all can be very detrimental for their um, lifelong just success.
0: And you're saying even if you're emotionally abused, it can change the physical makeup of your brain. Yes. Do we know the function of of kind of how that's happening or why that's happening?
1: Still, it's an early science. um, But one of the things that we know is that any type of trauma again whether it comes in the form of abuse neglect or something else um, it affects our stress responses and you know stress is a normal thing it's a good thing um, it you know our body recognizes new uh, stimulus new experiences and has to determine whether those are safe or unsafe if your body if your brain experiences something that is new it's going to alert you to that and it's going to set off Stress response. So let's say somebody were to bolt through the door here. That's going to startle us because we don't know what's going to happen next. But as soon as we realize that you know it's one of your colleagues or one of my colleagues, you know our brain tells itself to settle down and we go back to normal, right? But if that person storms through the door and threatens our safety in some way, or you know any other event like that, um, that can raise our stress response, and we can then have a chronic stress response from that. So every time someone walks through the door, you think it's a threat versus, you know, just a friend
0: or a colleague. So someone that has been traumatized, their brain is trained to have that sort of immediate stress reaction regardless of the situation. Yes. You said to me at one point, I think uh, off air, when we were talking about trauma, that trauma sort of overlays everything of all the sort of diagnoses that are out there. Trauma really needs to be thought of as, as kind of overlaying all of that. I wonder if you could Talk about what you what you meant by that.
1: Sure. You can either say overlay or I, I even say the foundation. So um, one of the pushes for the, the clinic health system are the ABCs, and that refers to um, – Uh, kind of a a platform of working with individuals who have alcohol and other drug abuse problems, um, behavioral health issues, or chronic disease. And when you take each of these individually, if you were to drill down from any of our patients that suffer from any of those those issues, you'll find that they likely have significant trauma in their background. Not everybody, but many, I would say. Um, And again, because of what chronic trauma does to the brain neurobiology. It makes us more prone to risk-taking behaviors. So let's say, for instance, an individual who has developed toxic stress, this change in the brain, um, they might develop symptoms similar to depression because of that trauma. And we might self-medicate. So alcohol or an opiate might help us feel a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Some people, you know, choose to try methamphetamine which is highly addictive and become and becomes a problem fairly quickly um, behavioral health issues, again, I've already mentioned that when the brain neurobiology is changed, uh, it can manifest in many different ways, and depression and anxiety are one of those ways. We have some children that are even uh, misdiagnosed with autism when their problem is actually traumatic experience. not organic autism. We see a lot of children diagnosed with um, ADHD as well and medicated for that when it is not organic ADHD. And then from a chronic disease perspective, we know that when um, our traumas build up, the more traumas we have, the more likely we are to have poor health outcomes, and that has a lot to do with excess cortisol, again, so our stress response. And uh, basically, an excess stress response, excess cortisol release, is like taking prednisone every single day, and we can see all sorts of health problems from that, including heart disease, um, high blood pressure, muscle wasting, osteoporosis. Glucose insensitivity and diabetes, you know, autoimmune disorders, all sorts of things. So, so that really speaks to your ABCs.
0: In terms of of trauma, I, d- I don't remember hearing about too much about this type of trauma in popular culture until the last few years, maybe. Um, in the medical community, um, and in in your experience, how long have we been looking at trauma this way? Are we kind of scratching the surface, or or is it more well known than than maybe we know?
1: we are scratching the surface. And in fact, I would say in most medical, medical communities, it really isn't recognized or understood to the point that it needs to be because it does underpin, underpin, excuse me, most of the, um, again, not most, but a lot of the, the problems we're seeing in our patient population. It wasn't until um, the 1980s where this really started to come onto the radar. And, um, do you want me to speak to the ACEs study because that's kind sure. of where it yeah. started. So in 1985, a physician out of California recognized that um, traumatic experiences were leading a lot of his obese patients to drop out of his weight loss clinic, um, and that led to then a survey of 17,000 insured. Uh, Kaiser Permanente customers in California, and they found that individuals who disclosed having adverse experiences in childhood, um, including abuse, neglect, and other household dysfunctions, had significant issues with emotional and behavioral health um, and, and poor physical health outcomes as well. So that's really um, that, that study was published in 1998, and that is really when everything started to take off. And it's slowly gaining momentum, um, but still has a long way to go.
0: How do you separate, one of the ideas that I've come across as I've done a little research on trauma is attachment, childhood attachment. How does that sort of interplay with trauma or does it?
1: Oh, absolutely. So we talk about the Emotional neglect piece, for instance, and this is when a, a child, an infant or, or young child, is in a an unresponsive um, uh, environment or a unresponsive and, and non nurturing environment. And one of the key factors with brain growth is experiences. Um, an infant needs to have millions and millions of experiences for that brain to grow. Every time there is an experience, whether it's something that they see, they hear, they taste, they touch, they feel, um, that causes a neuron to connect with another neuron. And every time they re-experience that, it strengthens that circuit. Um, without those experiences, our brains don't grow the way they're supposed to, and they don't learn to function the way they're supposed to. And so really, it's attachment is a very, very important part of... Um, uh, dealing with trauma or being able to overcome traumatic experiences—it goes along with that resilience piece that we were talking about earlier.
0: I wonder if you want to talk about, and I can set it up if you like. But I'd wonder—I wonder if you want to talk about um, the the Bucharest the Bucharest Early Intervention Project because I think that's a decent segue from talking about attachment and childhood development to have sort of a, an actual specific example where we. Almost unfortunately, had a real life laboratory for kind of researching how trauma impacts children. Do you want to talk about sort of what that was and and what we found?
1: Absolutely, I think I think it's very important. Um, So in the seventies and eighties in Romania, uh, they were under a communist regime and. Parents were essentially mandated to institutionalize their children and put them in orphanages so that they could go to work for the state government. Um, over a hundred thousand children were eventually institutionalized and raised in an orphanage. And they were stratified by health. So your healthier kids were placed in certain maybe slightly better resourced facilities, but the children that were born with any kind of Medical or physical impairment were placed in places where there were not a lot of resources, regardless that the conditions were pretty abysmal for anybody in this in these settings. Um, these children were um, essentially fed three times a day, but had very little uh, Caretaker interaction outside of again feeding them and changing their clothes. In many cases, they were handcuffed to their cribs. Um, they got very little activity, and again, just no or, or very little face to face interaction with adult caretakers or other children for that matter. And when the government was eventually overthrown, um, several physicians and researchers from the US were able to go over. And this is a study that would never pass an institutional review board. Um, would never get IRB approval in this country, but um, because of the circumstances, they were able to take some of these children and place them in foster care, some of them, and some of them remained in the institution. They didn't have enough families for them to go, for them all to go into foster care. And they were able to study and see what effects, A, that these children had from just being institutionalized, but then at what point in their life was kind of the breaking point for being able to recover from the traumas that they had experienced. And I will add that when the children were institutionalized, not, not only did they experience severe emotional neglect, but there were also rampant uh, physical and sexual abuses and other, you know, other terrible things going on there. Um, one, of the stu- one of the slides that I like to show when I speak about this is comparing two three-year-old brains, one from a, a child who was living in a quote-unquote normal nurturing environment, and the other was a child that lived had been raised in one of these institutions, and the the size of the um, institutionalized, institutionalized child's skull was significantly smaller. The brain was significantly smaller, and the amount of mass was smaller. So it's you know it's obviously a very visual thing, but it was a very drastic difference. That poor child who did not get all the nurturing that they needed, their brain didn't grow appropriately.
0: So obviously we can see there's a huge environmental component to the trauma response. Is there a a genetic or, or what do we know about sort of genetic resiliency? You know, might might you be more resilient than than I am in terms of responding to the same trauma or is it also fluid because we have such different backgrounds?
1: Resilience is not something you're born with. It's something that really has to be almost taught and nurtured in a sense. And it goes back to when we mentioned the attachment template. When you have a caregiver that responds to your needs as an early infant, even though these infants aren't having cognitive thought of, oh, this person cares for me, it teaches them that when they cry, someone's going to come and feed them, someone's going to come and change them, someone's going to take care of them. And it gives them first a, a view of themselves as being cared for, and and eventually that that portends to having a feeling of self worth. It teaches them that the caretakers around them uh, do care about them and will respond to their needs, and that they can trust those caretakers. But it also teaches them that the world around them is something that is fun and exciting and explorable, and you know, and it really gives kind of that more long term. Uh, positive view. Whereas if you have a child who has very poor attachment, doesn't get a lot of nurture and um, responsiveness in their environment, it's it's the opposite. They tend to have less self-confidence. They don't have as much trust in others. And they don't look at their world around them as being a place that is good and that that you know they're going to have a future in.
0: So when you talk about the differences in resilience between one person and the next, is there a way to build that resilience in? Are there practices or, or is there anything a person can do to become more resilient?
1: Well, and it's not something that I think most people instinctively think about improving about themselves necessarily. It's not, at least not children, but, but we know that resilience can be built in multiple domains. So probably the most important domain is relationships. Again, going back to attachment, they need to feel that somebody cares about them. Right. They need to feel that they have some sort of support and it can be ideally it's a caregiver, but it can also be a teacher. It can be a fireman. It can be anybody in the community. Um, some other ways, I think, from a community standpoint that we can really help build resilience in our children is to, first of all, give them a safe community to live in and give them lots of opportunities. So safe parks where they can play and not have to worry about any kind of violence, um, have community activities where they can participate, um, having more cultural um, traditions or even just you know, community-wide traditions that they can feel that they're a part of. Um, resilience is really built, again, through relationships. And that's kind of what, what this is all about in the end. So,
0: One of the things I think we talked about in the past when we were preparing for the podcast is that trauma can be intergenerational, that it can pass on from one person to the next, from a mother to her daughter. Can you kind of talk about how that occurs? Is it is it a DNA thing where once you have a traumatic experience, it kind of gets baked into your DNA and you pass it on that way? Or, or how does it work?
1: Baked in is not exactly um, the phrase I
0: would use. It's not a medical term, huh? <laughs>
1: well, I like it. I like it. There's a there's a, um, a field of science called epigenetics, and it looks at how do our experiences affect our DNA and therefore our, our subsequent generations. And when we experience trauma, we can have some changes to our DNA. Now, our DNA itself doesn't change the... Um, All of the base pairs are still exactly the same. But there are these little pieces called methylation products that actually attach to our DNA and then change the way our DNA um, express, how they function. So kind of turning some genes off and turning some genes on. Um, We can actually pass those methylation products along in our reproductive cells to our subsequent generations. And what's interesting is that any experiences that my mother had are already encoded essentially into some of my reproductive cells that then I pass along to my children as well. And not only that, when a woman uh, gets pregnant, if she has any adverse experiences during her pregnancy, let's say maybe using drugs or um, being a victim of domestic violence, her stress response also affects the fetus and essentially gives them a vicarious stress response that could potentially cause some epigenetic changes at that time as well. So there's unfortunately multiple ways bad experiences can affect our future generations.
0: Trauma-informed care is kind of an in vogue term right now. What does it really mean to practice trauma-informed care?
1: To be totally honest, it's just being a good person. You know, um, when we see the person on the street or in the hallway, we smile, we make eye contact, we make a connection, Um, we don't ignore, we don't – one of the things that I hate the most when I go to a place and someone's – you're waiting in line and the person just won't even make eye contact with you and acknowledge you before you're stepping up to the window – if I were in a poor mental state, that might actually get me pretty upset. Um, trauma-informed care is a buzzword. I think it's an important buzzword, though. And to me, what it means is that we should know what trauma does to The people around us, what it's done to us as well. But we, in our clinic, like to think of it, we we like to break this down a little bit more, and we do talk about being trauma-informed, and again, that's just having a general knowledge. But then there's the point of being trauma-responsive, and that would come down to individuals, let's say, in the healthcare system, law enforcement, child protective services, knowing that when you have somebody who is experience trauma, how do you respond to them? Teachers as well in the school systems. And then another layer is something known as trauma-specific services. So truly having services that speak to an individual's trauma to help them heal from that.
0: I'm wondering about treatment for somebody that has experienced severe trauma. Um, does it express itself sometimes in depression and then you treat the depression or anxiety and you treat the anxiety? Or is there a uh, A playbook for for treating trauma.
1: One of the most well-known courses of treatment for trauma is through therapy. Um, And in fact, one of the um, probably most studied forms is what we call cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's talk therapy. Um, And those tend to be very helpful, especially when you have an older individual who has decent executive functioning, and they can sit in... uh, um, therapy session and actually talk through their feelings. But one of the things that that we've recognized with especially these younger children and, and when trauma is experienced very early on is children don't, well, many of the children that we see don't technically have the executive functioning skills to be able to talk through their issues. And in fact, if their insults incurred occurred very early, they might have dysfunction in their brainstem, they might have dysfunction in their midbrain, in their limbic system, and in in their cortex. And so we have to almost start from the bottom and try to find ways to help them heal from the bottom up.
0: I guess I'm curious if I can ask personally, this is such a, a fascinating topic to me, I'm wondering what makes you passionate about wanting to do this kind of work?
1: I started off as a child abuse Pediatrician. Well, really, I was a hospitalist first, and um, got into child abuse early on in my career. And now I've been practicing in that realm for about ten years. Um, and always, it's 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 spoken to me um, for many reasons. But then I started to recognize that kids going into foster care, especially, had much more complex needs and really just needed um, more comprehensive care. And um, from a, from a physical perspective, but also from a behavioral health perspective. Um, and just seeing what these occurrences can do to a child who might already be behind the eight ball because they were born into poverty, but just knowing that they deserve a chance to be successful. They deserve a chance to have a healthy life with a strong, you know, upward moving trajectory. I think I, you know, as, as corny as it sounds, you know, they are our future, So we really need to do what we can do in our communities to take care of them and make sure that they have good outcomes. So at the Marshfield Child Advocacy Center, um, we developed a new service line. Um, It opened officially about a year and a half ago and unofficially about two and a half years ago, and that's called the Resilience Clinic. This is a place where children who have suffered trauma of of any type um, can come in for an evaluation. And our criteria for these for um, to bring children into the clinic is that a, they have had a traumatic experience at least one, and that they have manifestations of that trauma. and the manifestations can lie in, again, any domain, including behavioral and emotional health problems, physical health problems, and intellectual health problems. And what we do is we provide um, an interdisciplinary team-based approach to their care. So there is a medical provider, myself, at the table. We have a psychologist, Dr. Myra West, is at the table. Uh, we have what we call an education specialist, which is a very new, in, in, and I'll pat myself on the back for this, a very innovative approach where we have a teacher who is going to help us bridge between the child, their health care their behavioral health care, and the school system, Um, and a social worker who rounds out our team and is our glue, but helps with all of our wraparound resources and just making sure that some of those very basic needs are taken care of. Once the children come into the clinic, um, we do a very long, comprehensive initial evaluation, and if they meet our criteria, they then segue into a behavioral health um, assessment They are seen by our education specialist. If they're school age, he would see them in the schools. He would also then work with the teachers in the schools to help develop what we call a trauma-responsive classroom, Um, and he works with the parents. And then again, our social worker kind of wraps all that up and makes sure that they've got, you know, um, all of their insurance needs are taken care of, that they don't have any clothing needs or food pantry or or things like that. Um, They segue into therapy. Um, and from there, then we evaluate them about twice a year as a full team again. And we feel that this interdisciplinary approach is really ideal for covering all of their needs. Plus, we're working together very closely versus having a child go to a therapist over here and a doctor over there and you know some other specialist, um, and they don't really communicate very well. We're able to communicate and we're able to form a um, a plan that really speaks to this child's
0: needs. You mentioned working with the schools. How important – one of the things we're seeing in healthcare in general is integrating care into people's communities is important because people – that's where they live their lives. They don't want to go to the clinic or the hospital for everything and it just doesn't work for them very well. How important is it for you to be out engaging with community partners and the schools and social services and things like that to do the work that you do?
1: Very important. We have to break away from the silos. We have to break away from us working in our own respective buckets. We all have knowledge and expertise to share, and we need to be sharing it amongst each other. And that's the best. I think that's going to provide the best care for these kids overall. I'm going to give you a little bit of history. Back when I was coming up with this idea of the Resilience Clinic, um, one of the gaps that I recognized was that the kids um, A, they had you know complex medical needs, so they really needed physicians who understood where they were coming from and, and how to provide care for them. They obviously have significant behavioral and emotional health needs, and and, and we have our you know psychologists and, and therapists who um, have expertise in that area. But one of the biggest gaps was in the realm of um, education. Um, children in foster care, only about fifty percent of them graduate from high school, and only about ten percent of those in foster care go on to any kind of secondary education. So that kind of begged the question, what's going on from a cognitive or an intellectual standpoint with these kids? And then as we started learning more and more about trauma, we recognized that when you have this chronic stress response, you can't pay attention. You're looking around the classroom at any little noise, you're afraid is somebody behind you going to hit you? Um, How can you pay attention to the chalkboard and read the chalkboard and then be able to test well? You know, so again, and, and a lot of these kids were labeled as being naughty or daydreamers or, you know, not paying attention for whatever reason, but really in the end, they're just responding to their survival brain, as we like to say. And so by bringing in the education specialist and really, and again, a very novel position, I believe our position is the only one in the country um, that I'm aware of that does what we do, um, being able to educate the teachers about these children and and keep in mind too that every intervention that we recommend can be used with everybody. You know you don't necessarily want to single a child out in the classroom and say well you're you know you're having a tough day go over here. They don't like to have attention brought to them just like we don't like having attention brought to us when we're having a tough day. Um, But these interventions can be used with with the two of you. You know, um, they can be used with our colleagues, the rest of the classroom, and everybody benefits from that. So by teaching, by educating the teachers about what little tweaks they can make in their classroom to make this a more trauma-responsive classroom really just helps everybody overall. Um, Our education specialist also, like I mentioned, works with parents because – You know, teachers can do what they do and maybe they're the best teacher, but if you go home to an environment where a parent doesn't understand how to deal with trauma, then you've just taken three steps back. So really getting our parents to recognize what trauma does to the brain as well and how to respond to their children. And the last piece, which I think is so cool, is we're working with the kids too. We're really empowering them to understand how their brains work. And that in and of itself, you know, again, gives them – the inner strength to be able to um, implement some of these uh, these tasks and these um, interventions that we're, we're giving to them. You know, our mentality is we gotta fix the kid. Really, we've gotta fix the child's environment. We need to, you know, and so there aren't a lot of things that I am aware of that we can send our parents to. You know, you can recommend parenting classes. I don't know that the quality of all the parenting classes is the same or of high caliber. So unfortunately, I wish there were more and that's what that's one of our goals is to really develop some programs that will help help teach our parents how to parent. For whatever reason, you know, we have seen a huge breakdown in our family our, our intergenerational family units. You don't see the grandparents teaching the parents as much as we used to. And especially when we live in regions where there's a significant amount of poverty, that breakdown has occurred even more. Something else I thought would be, I just gave a talk this morning, so this is all fresh in my mind, um, talking about the ACEs again and talking about some of the, um, kind of speaking to the epidemic of ACEs in our child population now. So when um, Dr. Felitti and Dr. Anda did their initial study with the 17,000 individuals, they found that you know generally most of the population had zero ACEs, or at least the, the largest number had zero ACEs um, or adverse childhood experiences. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they found a, a threshold number of about four or more ACEs, and I think about 15% of the, of their population had experienced four or more. And that was essentially a magic number, in that, that's when they saw um, higher rates of uh, problems with behavioral health issues, emotional issues. Um, physical issues, risk-taking behaviors, and whatnot. We've repeated that study here in central Wisconsin. Um, Rachel Stankowski and I published our data a couple of years back, and we found fairly similar results. One of the things that we found that was different um, from the national data was that our rates of emotional abuse here, reported by our surveyed population, uh, we found that about 40 percent of um, the respondents said that they had been emotionally abused. And we compared that to the national data, and it was only about 25% for the national data. So that was really interesting for us. But something else to keep in mind is that, you know, these are results coming from adults 18 and up. When Washington State did a similar survey with children in their state, they found that now up to 30% of their kids have experienced four or more ACEs. So this is really an epidemic amongst our current children. And I would expect the numbers are gonna be going higher and higher because if you have more ACEs and your outcomes are poor, what's going to happen to your subsequent you know, children down the road? So we have to be very aware.
0: And do you attribute the rise in, in these experiences to the breakdown in the family that you had mentioned?
1: I think it's hard to say for sure. There's obviously multiple factors. I do believe that that is part of it. And again, every subsequent generation that suffers from alcohol and drug use, physical abuse, neglect, you name it, it will snowball. So I think that probably has a large um, role to play, but I don't know that there's any data that says for sure at this point in time.
0: Dr. Kristen Eniguez, thank you so much for joining us on The Rounds.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Rounds is produced by Ryan Maderick and supported by the Marketing and Communications Department of Marshfield Clinic Health System. You can subscribe to The Rounds and download episodes via iTunes or by visiting shine365.marshfieldclinic.org. I'm Adam Hawking and I hope you'll join us next time on The Rounds.